Okay. Well, we're really lucky today to be joined by uh, by Kelly Richmond uh, Richmond Pope. Thank you very much for uh, for joining us uh, uh, joining us today. I'm going to go through Kelly's official background first, and then I will touch on her unofficial background. I think her unofficial background is actually more impressive. Do than the her unofficial. Do the unofficial <laughs> first. Do the unofficial. I know we got to start. We got it. We got it. We got to lay it out, Kelly. Because again, it, the, <laughs> the 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 official is going to explain the unofficial very very clearly. Okay. So official background, you are a professor um, of forensic accounting at the uh, DePaul University in, uh, in, in Chicago. You are the director and the producer of All the Queen's Horses, which is an incredible uh, documentary. I'm going to touch on that in a second. Um, uh, for anybody who hasn't seen it, especially if you're in finance, you should definitely take a, take a watch. It is the story of the largest uh, municipal fraud in U.S. history, where a single controller stole approximately $54 million from a tiny um, jurisdiction in the U.S., Dixon, Illinois. It's an incredible, uh, it's an incredible story. So Kelly is the brains behind that uh, documentary. Kelly is also an author. She wrote um, uh, Fool Me Once, again, which is a, uh, a book that is loaded with uh, not only just accounting fraud stories, but other unethical behavior that will frankly, will shock uh, some people, including stories of a pharmacist who is um, diluting uh, cancer drugs in order to increase profitability. It is a, uh, again, it is an eye-opening uh, eye-opening story or an eye-opening book. Lots of uh, jaw-dropping stories in the book. It's a phenomenal book. I've been giving it away um, as part of accounting trivia for the last couple of weeks as I've been presenting at a few accounting conferences. And then not surprisingly, Kelly has also been ranked as one of the top 25 most powerful women in accounting, which Kelly, that is a, a pretty cool uh, title. Uh, so congratulations. That's a, uh, that's a very cool title. Now, I'm then going to go into Kelly's unofficial background, uh, because again, I, I don't think anyone is going to be surprised by this, but Kelly, we don't have a lot of accounting rock stars in our world, <laughs> but you are certainly an accounting rock star. And I would go almost as far as saying you are the accounting version of, of Whitney Houston. Um, because, <laughs> That's my favorite singer, by the way. Yeah, no, I read your book. I know it is, but it's true. It is absolutely, it is absolutely true because I'm connecting with you on LinkedIn. And anyone that's connected with Kelly on LinkedIn, you will find her traveling the globe, speaking to um, universities, speaking to uh, accounting bodies, literally um, countries all over the world. Um, she's all over the place uh, talking. And the other thing, too, is, you know, accounting fraud has typically um, it steals some headlines every once in a while, including most recently with respect to crypto. Um, and Kelly is, is sought out for her opinion and her perspectives uh, by several organizations. So, um, again, Kelly, if we have accounting rock stars in our world, you are certainly you are certainly one of them. And I feel like I am qualified in order to, you know, to bestow this this title upon you, because if you look behind me, I have a map called Pacioli's Travels behind me. And we also have a trophy that we give out every year to a certain finance group called Pacioli's Cup. So I am like a big time accounting nerd. So I feel like I can I can I can weigh in on this uh, on this uh, <laughs> this perspective. The other thing I just want to touch on before we get into the questions with Kelly is is the documentary, um, All the Queen's Horses, which again I would highly recommend. Whether you're finance or not finance, take a watch of this uh, this documentary. It is it is shocking that a single controller could steal $54 million from a tiny, um, uh, you know, city or, or, or township in the U.S., Dixon, uh, Illinois. 
um, with an annual budget, I think somewhere around 10 million bucks, um, that someone could actually steal $54 million over a period of time is, is shocking. The documentary is, is, is incredible. And, um, and I just two thoughts on this, on this documentary, Kelly, because I've been going through, um, I've been presenting at some accounting conferences just internally over the past couple of weeks. And, and there's two things I know, two, two, two things to point out here. Um, and just in terms of how good this doc is, is that when I would explain the documentary to the group, almost in unison, everybody in the room would sit and write down the name of the documentary. Now, Kelly, they're not writing down anything else I say <laughs> during the course of my presentation, but they are certainly writing down the name of that documentary. Um, and then even for the non-accountants, I have a friend of mine who was asking me recently saying, Scott, why are you so obsessed? Why are you talking about this documentary so much? Now, he's a non-accountant, so he doesn't really understand. So I have to take it in and break it down into non-accounting terms. And I would say, okay, have you seen the movie Avengers Endgame? And the non-accountant would say, of course, I've saw the movie Avengers Endgame. Nearly everyone in North America has seen this movie. It's one of the most watched movies um, uh, that's ever been produced. Say, so, well, all the Queen's horses is the Avengers Endgame for accountants. It is a <laughs> absolute must watch. And it is not just for accountants. It is pretty much for anybody who um, works for any sort of an organization where you don't want to get ripped off. Um, because again, it is happening. And if there's one thing from your book, uh, it is certainly the amount of fraud out there is not going down. And it takes a whole bunch of different different forms. So Maybe just now to start it off with you, Kelly, is how did you how did you get involved with not just accounting but forensic accounting, right? Like mm -hmm. a, a a pretty um, specified area of, of 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 accounting. Where did it start for you? Well, it actually started because I was teaching a class. Um, I was a professor at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro before I was at DePaul, and I had a student that wrote a research paper about forensic accounting years ago, and that was actually my first introduction. So just to remember, professors do read those student papers. We read them from, from, from beginning to end, and I read this paper, and I was like, wow, I really like this field because um, it's like a mashup between accounting, psychology, sociology, criminology, auditing, and then just with a dash of nosiness. So I just thought I was really attracted to the field because of I think that it um, utilized my strengths. And so uh, that's what init initially attracted me to it. I see. And why do you like it now? So after after spending your career in um, in, in forensic accounting, what keeps you in it? Like what? Uh, why, why do you keep doing it? What I think is the most important aspect of accounting is how you can use numbers to shape and tell any story that you want. And so to be able to dissect that story or ask questions about sto that story or just feel comfortable about um, looking at numbers, just um, I'm intrigued by the challenge always, you know, so I think that's what keeps me coming back for more. Got it. So in your book, you talk about this a little bit, um, you know, you know, when, when most people go to Bermuda or Barbados, they would be spending their time on the beach. Um, when you went to Bermuda or, Bar uh, uh, or Barbados, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to show my age here. I'm not sure if it works in the same way, but you're cracking open the yellow pages, looking for the <laughs> local women's prison and going to do interviews at the, at the, uh, at, at the women's prison. This is how you spend your, your time where you could have been on the, on the beach with your, with your colleagues. Um, so, 
why do you, you what fascinates you about going from because this is part of the like you have been to i'm guessing hundreds of of prisons and interviewed um hundreds of uh people who have been you know convicted of, of financial crime um you know what why do you spend your time doing that what fascinates you about that uh, aspect of things what fascinates me is that um helping people realize that it's the normal everyday person that can find themselves wrapped into a fraud scheme or case. So it's, I'm not talking to or looking for con artists or career criminals. It's people really like you and me that find themselves just either following the boss's orders or um, just doing something that they think that that they can correct in a later period. Um, just trying to meet earnings expectations. Oh, I'm just going to make this entry here and I'll be able to correct it later. It's people like that that I find fascinating because prisons are filled with everyday um, college-educated, professionally trained people. And um, I'm fascinated by those stories. And what have they taught you? Like all your research about white-collar criminals, is that really what it comes down to? Is that this could this could be any one of us, you, you know, is that it is a very slippery slope. It probably doesn't all happen overnight. It's probably a gradual, you know, there's a number of really good stories in your book about this where, you, you know, again, it's almost like quicksand, you know, that, where you get in a little bit and then all of a sudden you can't get out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and what's your take on white collar on your white collar criminals? Like what? What's the key points that that you would that you would illustrate through all your research on, yeah. on white collar criminals? So there's some there's some terms that are common that I don't um, hold true anymore. Um, I don't think the slope is that slippery, you know. Like okay. you know, I, I really don't because, like you just uh, said, it happens over time, and a slippery slope is quick. You know, you don't see it, you slip, and you hurt yourself. But when yeah. something is marinating over time. You sort of know it. You know that it could happen. You've gotten yellow flags, red flags, then really heavy rape, waving red flags to not do it, and you do it. So I'm not a proponent of the slope is very slippery. I, I don't think it's that slippery at all. Um, I also think that because it is not slippery, it could happen to any of us. And so yep. we should learn to um, empathize a little bit with the challenges that employees have to face when they're in these boardrooms, when they're in these work groups, making these complex decisions, because sometimes that wrong decision isn't necessarily made by somebody that has greed in mind or will have a profit, a direct profit motive for themselves in mind. Sometimes it is just um, following the boss's order. So really just this idea that there's a profile of um, a white collar fraudster. I don't hold that to be true for myself anymore because I think it could be anybody, anybody. Yep. And I think that's why it's, let's see, what's the date to date? Maybe a $5.3 uh, trillion dollar problem because it's not just the con artists. It's not just yep. the career criminals. It's everybody that yep. could fall victim to um, seeing themselves ensued in a fraud scheme. The next question I want to ask you is on on Dixon, Illinois. Again, the stories in your book, you cover a wide range of of stories. But the one that you pinpointed, the one that you've um did a documentary on was um was Dixon, Illinois. And I'm just wondering why the focus on Dixon? What what is the unique aspect? Why is that one so close to your heart uh in terms of uh in terms of Dixon uh D- Dixon, Illinois? Why 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 is that one so important? 
I think Dixon is so important because it is the unlikely suspect. It's the unlikely area that you think where the largest anything would happen. So here you have the smallest Midwestern quintessential United States town, maybe town and globally. I mean, it's small population, very tight knit community. Who would ever think that someone amongst that population would commit such an egregious fraud? That's the first thing I think that is um, really important about Dixon is what Dixon represents. The second thing is who the fraud was committed by. Not some Ivy League trained Wall Street MBA executive, but a person that finished high school, started an apprenticeship and learned the ropes. Um, you know, a salt of the earth kind of person that just learned how to do their job. And that was a yeah. very trusted person. So I think um, that's the second thing. The third thing is the fact that she lived, she being Rita Cronwell, the perpetrator in my documentary, lived her fraud out in the open. She owned horses. She yeah. had real estate. She had furs and clothes and she traveled and she was this well-known um, horse equestrian winner in this other part of her life. All of those variables just make Dixon such a fascinating case. And that's why I focused on it so much. If, this, if Dixon were New York City or even Chicago, um, yeah. any of our major cities across uh, London, Paris, you name it, this story wouldn't have the same um, impacts because I think we would say, oh, yeah, that happens in major cities. But in small towns where people probably don't even lock their doors at night, where everyone knows everyone, generation upon generation lives there, I think that's what makes it so fascinating. The other thing I want to ask you about um, about about Dixon, it, you know, you talk a lot in your book about how you bring a lot of reformed criminals into your classroom to 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 talk to your talk to your students. You know, Brett Johnson, uh, and we've had uh, Brett was on this. We I, we did a show with, uh, with with Brett, and 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 again, he's a really really interesting interesting guy. Um, and I wanted to ask you because Rita. Based on everything I know, you've never spoken. You've never really had. You've never brought her into your classroom. No, and, I don't think she and, come. <laughs> and well, that's my question, Kelly. What separates the 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 people who made a mistake? What separates them from the ones who are reformed? Who who you bring into your classroom? Um, like Nathan Mueller, Walt Pavlo. Like there's a whole bunch of them from your book actually that you had that you had brought in, versus the other ones, say like a Rita Cronwell who wouldn't come in? Like what separates the one that are able yeah. to get reformed versus the ones that don't get reformed or, or are unable to get reformed? Well, you know, I don't know if there's um, a personality trait per se. I think some people lean into the bad and try to turn it into good. I mean, think about this. If you commit um, a crime like this, your name is known. You Google your name, it's going to come up. So I think yeah. that there's some people who are just able to say, you know what? You're going to find about find out about this anyway. I'm going to lean into it and I'm going to try to help people never make the same mistakes that I made. Rita might be just a little bit more shy, a little bit more embarrassed, and maybe just wants to forget about it and try to live a new life. So I think, you know, it's just um, a, a choice, a personal choice. Um, do you see this as a way that you can help others? 
or do you just want it to go away? And I think that we can all um, identify things in our lives that we would just like to just let bygones be bygones and never talk about it again. Or other people try to use those experiences to teach others and learn from it. So I think it's just a personal choice, but not necessarily a personality trait. I think some people um, feel as though the people that are willing to share their story are somewhat narcissistic. And I don't, I don't believe that. I mean, a lot of times when I've done um, interviews with offenders, I've talked them into sharing their story because sometimes they feel as though what they did is really, really horrible and it's really shaped and impacted them negatively. And I said, you know, I know you feel that way, but there's still value that people can learn from. And so I think it's almost part of their even rehabilitation um, because it's not easy to share the most embarrassing thing that everybody knows about you before you even tell them to a group of people. But I think that some have just learned how to lean into it in a different way. So I'm going to share a story. And it actually, when we had Brett Johnson on, um, this is a story I shared with, uh, with Brett as well, because it's actually relevant for, uh, for Brett. But one of the, one of the other folks that we had on, um, was a guy by the name of Chris Mathers. Chris uh, was an RCMP officer. Chris worked as a as a drug enforcement agent in the United States. And Chris eventually landed at KPMG, um, running the forensics division. And then now he's out doing his uh, doing his own thing. And I want to get your perspective on on ethics and and where and and how people's ethics are built. So the story Chris had the story Chris had shared was uh, it was his first day working or his first for he just started working for the RCMP. They broke into a house and there was uh, they, they arrested a uh, or there was a, a person who had drugs inside the, uh, the in the house. So there was three things inside the house. There was hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash. There was a huge stack of drugs and there was this perpetrator. And Chris was about to uh, about to arrest them. And Chris had said, hold on a second. Or, or excuse me, the perpetrator said, hold on a second. I have an idea. He said he said to Chris, he said, Chris. How about you take the hundred grand, I take the drugs, and we forget this whole thing ever happened. Uh, so at that point in time, you had mentioned it's not a slippery slope. I agree. So Chris is faced with an ethical decision at that point. Chris's response to that question was, I got a better idea. He goes, how about I impound the drugs? How about I impound the cash? And how about I take you off to jail? Um, basically making the right decision. And I said, Chris, I said, in that singular moment, how did you make the right decision? What was it that made this? Was it all the training you had taken at the RCMP at that point? Was it something as an ethics course that you took in university? And he had said, no, no, it's much more simpler than that. He goes, it comes down to my mom and dad. He goes, my mom and dad, when I was five, six, seven, eight years old, they told me right from wrong. Now, the reason why this was relevant for Brett is Brett grew up in an environment which almost encouraged, you know, unlawful behavior. So I just wanted to get your perspective with everybody you've met. Is it like, should we, does it really come down to that, Kelly? Like, does it, does it come down to, would you agree with that assessment that, you know, that your ethics are, are, are started when you're, when you're, uh, you know, a, a youngster and, and the values that your, your parents, you know, teach you at that, that they teach you right from wrong. What's your, what's your take on that? So, uh, yes and no. Yes. I do think that it starts early, definitely at home or your community, but I would argue that 
Chris's ethics have been reinforced repeatedly in the environments that he's worked in. And he may not even be thinking about it that way, but that one single source of truth that happened when he was five is not still relevant when he's 45. It's because with that 40 year period, I'm just going to make up his age, but that 40 year period has been reinforced by maybe Boy Scouts, maybe coaching from being on teams that he's played on, maybe teachers, maybe bosses at previous jobs. All of that has been reinforced year after year after year after year after year. So he's luckily been in in environments that have reinforced the same messages over and over and over again. So now when he looks back, he can say that starting point might have been when he was five. But those reinforcement points have become a blur because he's just had them so frequently that it's just sort of part of part of him now. Um, With that same idea. You can start at a really good point at five, but if you've been in toxic environments that have not reinforced those ethics repeatedly, or you are in a situation where you are in an aggressive sales organization and it's a by any means necessary kind of approach to how you work, then whatever you learned at five has not been reinforced in the same way. So you could have started off following the golden rule. But by the yep. time you are a VP, senior executive, the golden rule has turned into, uh, I don't even know what rule it is now. So I don't totally agree with it starts at that, it starts and ends at that point. It's been reinforced throughout time. And it's, why those, it's why those reinforcements can alter where you started from. I've sat down with many of people who grew up in outstanding homes, religious you know, very faithful. Um, and they've walked into these environments that have shaped that in a negative way. So it's not just that. How do they get compromised then? You take somebody, you know, who let's say grew up in a good home, who has, you know, has, let's say in their earlier days, you know, followed the right path. How do things turn? Sure. Like where it like is there it, do you think it's a singular point Kelly or do you think it's a it's an environment it's a it's a it's a gradual change over time. Like it, like like do you think there's a single point that changes it or is it a more gradual change that the environment that they're working in eventually ch- changes their changes yeah. their ethics. Um I think it's a gradual change and I think there's a collision between your personal life and your professional life. So let's say when you are 25, going up the corporate ladder, let's say you don't have a family, you don't have a mortgage, you don't have a car note, you don't have any student loans, then maybe at 30, you decide you're going to go back to graduate school. You're going to go get your, your MBA. Then two years later, you get married. Three years later, you have twins. No, let's say triplets. You have triplets. <laughs> then you yeah. buy a house. And then not after you're in your house for, say, 10 years, you realize that um, there was an unexpected fire that your insurance didn't cover. And on top of that, you work at a publicly traded company and you have the pressure of meeting expectations of the street. And you got to keep that job because now you have a spouse, you have a house, you have a student debt from that MBA that you got, and now you have triplets that are in private daycare. So you have this collision now between your personal life and your professional life because your professional life is saying, go, go, go. We have to make this work. Personal life is saying, you got to keep this job. 
Yep. Ethics can ethics then become the sea on the they're, they're the seesaw. So it goes sort of like up and down, up and down, depending on who that leadership is. Hopefully it stays up. But depending on who that leadership is, it can sway on the downward downward side. So I think it's um it can it can it's a gradual shift. It's a gradual decline. Um, and it can be a gradual rise as well. But we got to keep it up when it's up. And and I think it's it, we're going to talk a little bit about this, but it just reinforces the point of as a company you are you have to continually reinforce ethics. Like it is a it it is so important in order to in order to do that in order to keep pushing the importance of proper ethical behavior. Because like you and say, I, it is not a gra- and past behavior. I think what you're saying is past behaviors can change. You know, maybe if you worked in an environment where things certain things were acceptable. Then you go to a new environment where certain things were not acceptable. Your behavior could change that way as well. Well, and I think that um, how we talk about ethics in a corporate sector has to be very impactful. So I think a lot of times the mistakes that we make is we are focused on, did you sign the code of ethics? Did you sign it? Did you read it? Did you do the training that went through the regulations? But we need more um, scenario-based, situational-based kinds of stories, which is why I sort of filled the book with stories, because I wanted people to relate to those stories, because that's where you have the ethical growths. You don't necessarily always have the growths just in the rules. Rules with story gives you growth. Is there anything that makes, as you had mentioned, as you just said, the the book touches on not just accounting issues, but lots of different issues well outside of accounting. Is there anything that makes accounting accounting criminals unique compared to, you, you know, again, I use the example of the, of the pharmacist who was diluting the cancer drug. Um, you, you know, you know, you, there, you have a whole bunch of stories in there. Is there anything that makes the accountants unique versus the others? Yeah, I think um, accountants are unique because they know that when they learned accounting, they learned about the accounting equation. And they know that assets have to equal liabilities plus stockers equity. So they know that all four of our basic financial statements talk to each other. If you pull out one piece out of one of them, you got to fill it with something else to make that balance. So you can't, yep. you can't steal cash. You can't overstate revenue. So if you think about it, accountants know that. So we are probably a little bit more skilled when it comes to fraud. And that's why when it happens and we're involved in it, um, we tend to be, um, our sentencing can be higher. Um, we're looked up, we're frowned upon more because we know how to hide it in a different way. So uh, you think about, we know that there are trends, accounts that sort of go together. For example, if you have rising cash flows, um, your inventory should probably be going down. But if your inventory is flat, but you're saying you're selling a lot, we know the relationship. So we know better. And so I think that we are probably a little bit more um, savvy when it comes to our our fraud because we know better. So the person that might be the HR executive that um, you created a ghost employee. Yeah. They understand the numbers in a different way than we do. So we live and breathe accounting regulations, standards. We know what it should be. And then that also, we also know what it can't be. And we know how to, we know how to, we know how to 
to say this in a politically correct way, the best way I can, we know how to lie. And yeah. so I think that that's what makes us a little bit more dangerous when we do it. Uh, you're right. I agree. Okay. So I'm going to go back to a couple more stories because again, how to encourage proper ethics in a company. A couple more stories I want to share with you, Kelly. I want to get your, I want to get your thought on this. I'm going to go back to, I got two, got one from Chris again, and I got one person from your book. Actually, Walt Pablo, because I listened to one of his podcasts. So here's another Chris Mather's story. As I had asked Chris, I said, hey, Chris, how do you encourage proper ethics in a company? Chris said, well, let's go back hundreds of years ago when somebody um, went against the king and the queen. He goes, what would the king and the queen do is they would lop off their head, stick it on a stake, and put it for all to see. And everybody would clearly know what was right and what was wrong. So Chris, the perspective was one way to in encourage proper ethics is that if somebody commits a fraud within your company, um, you fire that person, provided again, there's evidence and everything like that. And you tell everybody what happens if you commit a fraud. I'm just wondering, can we talk ethics courses? And like you say, questionnaires, your thoughts on that strategy and saying, hey, look, if someone goes offside, you tell the world. Because I'm not sure about how many companies actually do that. You know where where they would actually do that, but I just want to get your perspective on that strategy within a within a company to encourage proper ethical behavior across the board. So I think it, that's an interesting example because it you're it's talking about the solution, but not the problem. And so the problem, what we really have to uncover is why did the person do that? What are the internal control weaknesses that allowed the person? that did that. So you can cut their head off and you can make an example, but that still didn't fix the problem. And the yep. problem was there is some internal control weakness that still might be there. Just cut their head off if you want to make an example of what they did. But if you don't fix the problem, there are going to be some other heads that are coming way like quicker, quicker than you think. So yep. I think, I think that is part of it, but it's not all of it because you have to investigate what led us here. And so I think we don't spend, in that example, we're not spending enough time on why. Why did we yep. get here? Why did they do it? Was there, did they try to blow the whistle and I didn't listen? Were there no internal um, hotlines? Like, how did we get here? Is there a policy that we have not buttoned up that allowed this person to think it was okay? You know, it, it's really, your question really makes me think back to why I did All the Queen's Horses. Because what I was noticing, um, what was happening, not only in the Chicagoland area, but nationally across the U.S. when they were talking about this story, is they were only talking about the what, what Rita did. She stole this money and she lived this lavish lifestyle. Okay, we're going to make an example out of Rita. My goal with the documentary was, let's explore why Rita thought she could do that. What yep. was going on in Dixon, Illinois? To make a person think yep. that they could steal $53.7 million over 20 years and get away with it and did for a long time. Let's talk about that. Let's pull back those layers. Because if we fix that problem, not only do we fix it in Dixon, but we might be fixing it in municipalities around the globe. If we talk about some of the internal control weaknesses that were happening within Dixon. So I think cutting the head off is what, what the news was doing when they were just focusing on, look at Rita, look what she did, bad woman, bought these horses, lived a lavish lifestyle, now she's going to jail. That's the head cutting off pro pro approach. 
let's peel back and talk about Dixon now. Because Dixon had an environment that allowed the readers to be born. So let's think about that. So um, I think that's part of it, but I think that's not the full thing. That's a great point. I, I, again, I, I totally agree. Uh, so I'm going to quote now somebody from your book, Walt Pavlo. So Kelly, as I'm going through your book, literally what I would do is I would stop and I would then go on LinkedIn and, and I would try and research. If you referenced it, like again, you met Nathan Mueller, I think was his name, Walt Pavlo. There's a bunch of them where, you know, Brett Johnson, I would, I would stop and I would do, and I would try and learn about them. One of the guys that fascinates me is, is Walt Pavlo. And I'd actually listened to one of the interviews that Walt had done. And it sounds like Walt actually teaches ethics courses at some of the big accounting firms. What Walt had said was, we need to stop teaching ethics courses to some degree, and we need to start educating people on minimum prison sentencing guidance um, in your particular country. So people need to understand, because the reality is, a lot of the stories in your book ended up with a visit from the FBI and ended up with somebody going to prison. If somebody knew, I certainly don't know if I stole X dollars from somewhere, what, you know, you can imagine it's going to be bad. I don't know what the prisoning sentence would be for that. Maybe I should know what the prison, prison sentence guidelines for that. What's your take on that? Is that, do you think that would act as a deterrent where if people knew, (laughs) if people knew I'm going to jail for 10 years, is it going to change their behavior? Listen, Scott, I'm going to make an, an analogy here with that. Okay. People know that um, smoking cigarettes are bad for your lungs, yeah. right? Yeah. Right? We know that. And yet we still do it. So we know the <laughs> risk. The, the problem with um, Walt's analogy, in my opinion, Walt, I'm sorry to say this, but um, we can agree to disagree. But the problem, yeah. I think, with his analysis analogy is that I don't see myself as going to prison. So I don't even need the information that you're sharing. Why are you telling me about minimum sentencing guidelines? I'm not thinking that that's ever going to apply to me. So yeah. you're, it's almost like if you're point A, Tell me about the minimum sentencing guidelines. It's, it's point Z. You, you've just completely leaped me over to saying that what the punishment will be. I don't even think that that relates to me. So, yep. no, I do not think that we should stop teaching ethics and start teaching about sentencing guidelines because that's too far away. It's too far down. You know, matter of fact, when I um, even introduced all the Queen's Horses in my uh, classes, when I'm about to show it to my students, I give them an I give them an exercise, and I think I talk about this in my book. Um, I, I tell them if you walked into the classroom one day and you saw a bag of money sitting at the front desk, what would you do? And they're quiet for a little bit, and I'll start writing their answers on the board, and and some somebody will say, "Well, tell me," I'll say, "Tell me what you were thinking," and they will say, "Well, what time does the next class come here?" What time did the next class leave? Does the room have cameras? How old am I? Am I married? Are my parents alive? Do I have kids? Have I passed a CPA exam? They're rationalizing yeah. why it would be okay to, take, to either take some or all of the money. The student then that says, well, I would turn the money into the security guard that's downstairs. Everybody turns and looks at the student and says, well, that's ridiculous. All that person's going to do is just take it. You need to take it before someone else takes it from you. So 
if I started that conversation about, let's talk about federal sentencing guidelines and what happens if you, no one's even, they don't even think that relates to them because the mindset is I'm going to take something. If I think I can get away with it, I probably will do it. So I think it's too far fetching, far, far reaching what, what that, what he's saying to do. No, I, 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 I hear your point. So what is the, what is the secret Kelly? is you've talked a lot about prevention, internal controls, but you've also talked about uh, the, the, the importance of ethical training as well. If we just talk ethical training first, have you seen a best practice on, on, on teaching ethics? You know, you mentioned going through and just asking people to sign off on a checklist is not helpful because they're probably not reading it. Thought on a best practice for ethics training within, let's say, a public company. What's your what's your two cents? What's your what's your thought on that? I think um, I'll tell you something I did um, with my book. I created this game. It's an interactive game called the Fool Me Once Experience. And so you go in, you play this game, and it'll tell you if you were ever to be a perpetrator, what type of perpetrator would you be? So if you remember, the book has um, that perpetrator section is broken down into intentional perpetrators, accidental perpetrators, and righteous perpetrators. So you go through these scenarios and you answer these questions. Um, for example, well, I'll send it to you and you can play it. But anyhow, at the end of it, it'll tell you, oh, you would be an intentional perpetrator based on your 10 selections, um, or you would be an accidental perpetrator based on your choices of these 10 different scenarios. I think that we need scenario based outcomes for people and understand how they would reason when they are faced with a dilemma. We don't do that enough. You know, it's, it's so here's our rules. Did you read the rules? That's it. But knowing that you need to get two sign offs on your receipt. If you're out to dinner with a client, you need to have, you need to list everybody that's there and then you need to get two approvals. That doesn't mean that you won't take out your neighbor who's your friend and call them your client. You know, so you need to give people scenarios to think about how does this rule actually, how do we operationalize this rule and what could go wrong with it? That's where the scenarios come in. So I think that we need to think a little bit more deeply about how we're doing our ethics training, because if it's just a sign off, you know, it's almost like give you even a a better example. It's a nothing. Yeah. Give you a better example. We all, when we're what, 16, 17, 18, we sit, we take the driver's education exam. We get our driver's license. We know every rule in the book. We know what all the stop signs mean. We know what the speed limit means. We know that we know we're supposed to put our seatbelts on. But we still, how do we operationalize it? Well, if I'm late for a meeting, I'm going to run the stoplight or I'm going to go fast or I'm going to check my email, check my phone while I'm driving because I'm not driving that far or that fast. You're bang on. So it's 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 this idea of ethics training tra- traditionally and historically has been how we treat getting our driver's license. We know the rules, but we don't talk enough about how those rules are operationalized and what could go wrong. You know, I remember, um, at least in the U.S., when um, this might have been. 10, maybe 15 years ago, they would have these public service announcements. Um, they would come on TV and it would show two things. One was, what's your brain on drugs? Or they would, they would fry an egg and show like what your brain was doing when, if you take drugs. Second one, they would oh, have, remember pe- that. you remember that, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. That's a scenario, yep. right? 
That's a scenario. Another time, um, they would have it's like the Mothers Against Drug Drugs. I was about to right? say like they would. You would yep. have them on TV talking, holding the picture of their child, saying, "This is what happened. My son, my daughter was 15, and they were coming home from a party, and this is what they yep. did." Those things have impacts, and ethics can be the same way. So I think what Walt is saying is he's he's having an impact by saying this could happen to you if you do this. He's just missing a big chunk of the story that then that you need to put that in the middle before you get to the sentencing guidelines. Well, I I love. Yeah. And sorry, I was going to say, Kelly, I love in your book when you talk about the impact that the perpetrators have when they talk to your students is that you tell the story of going to meet Nathan Mueller in his in, in his garage or parents garage or whatever. And when he's speaking, you could hear a pin drop in the room. Is that the students? I can just picture it in my mind that they're that they're listening intently, and you know, just can't wait to hear what he's going to say next. You know, and and again, he can tell you how it happened, how it played out, and and how it's affecting him today. Like that's pretty powerful stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Th- those stories where you hop on a plane, take the class. You know, that's amazing. I'm not sure how many university professors do that, but you know, it's almost like well we should be doing something similar to that on the inside as well, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, something we do, um, we have a, a course like this at DePaul and it's a nationwide course. It's called the Inside Out Program. And what it is, is um, you take students that are currently college students at your university and you take them into the prison and you have a class and you have students that are inmates that are part of the class. And wow. so it's called the Inside Out Program. And Just imagine, now what you're supposed to not do, the students that are incarcerated are not supposed to share their stories, but just in the course of a class, you know, you're going to hear just different things. Just imagine how powerful that is. If you were sitting in a business ethics class and you had 10 students that were college students and then 10 students that were former executives that were incarcerated for financial crimes and you were- Think about how powerful that would be for those students. And so absolutely, I know that you can't scale that, but what if you recorded the interaction and it became absolutely. a documentary series and it went absolutely. nationwide? Then you have impact on how to shape the next generation of ethical leaders. Absolutely. Oh, I agree. Um, you have a quote in your book, Kelly, trust is not an internal control. What do you mean by that? Well, sometimes um, we we like a person, um, we, we put these emotional, um, characteristics around a person and trust is very emotional. I trust you, Scott. So I'm going to share things with you. And in actuality, Scott, I might not know anything about you, (laughs) but because I like you and I trust you here, I'm going to share all these things with you, but that is not a control. That's an emotion. And so we don't want that emotion to be what guides us Um, when we are um, setting guidelines or precautions or um, just just controls to help protect the organization. You don't want emotions. You want true. It's almost like um, a seatbelt. You know, your controls are a seatbelt. You don't want to drive and say, oh, I feel like I have a seatbelt on. You want that seatbelt on. And so trust being um, not an internal control is trust is an emotion that's not an internal control. Where's the balance? Because there has to be some level of trust, you know, like, like if you go your whole life without trusting anybody, 
it, it it's probably going to be a pretty challenging challenging path. Now, on the flip side, you can't be blindly trusting anybody. You know, we use a saying, trust and verify, you know, as, as a, and I'm just wondering, is there a balance somewhere where, you know, there has to be some level of trust, but then some level of verify, or you're saying, you know what, look like, you know, or, or, or do you take a view that the employee just started, my trust level is going to be really low. And then over a period of five or six years, it's going to build up. And then I can start having a little bit more trust. Do you think it's, do, do you think it's it like there is a, a role for trust in internal controls or are you saying, no, like the role is really limited. You've got to be really careful because things can change and you need to have like tight controls to make sure that they don't go offside. So I agree um, that there is a point where you do trust, but trust is something that is earned, not assumed. Yeah. And I think we walk into a lot of scenarios assuming and it hasn't been earned yet. And so I think once you have, um, put the proper controls in place, you've tested them, you've updated them, you routinely monitor them, then your trust level has been earned and it's going up. But just don't assume because you yep. hired a certain person that went to a certain school that has a certain degree that, boom, they're trustworthy. Don't do that. Another saying that I love from your book um, is mind your business. <laughs> and this is going to lead into our discussion on, 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 on the importance of whistleblowers to kind of um, get, get, get closer to, to wrapping things up here. But what do you mean by mind your business? What, how, and why is that so important? So I don't know about you, um, but casually mind your business is something that we sort of say just um, uh, amongst my friend group. Like yep. I was just minding my own business and such and yep. such happened. But if you really think about it, mind your business. And so make sure that you are in the the trenches, the details, pay attention to everything. What does that mean? That means review your transactions weekly, monthly. Pay attention to those details that you think are not important because somebody is making sure, someone is betting on that you're not paying attention. So mind those details. Mind your business. So it was really a play on words, but that's, it's such a, it's such an, no, it's a, you're bang on again. I, I, it's a great, it's, it's a great, uh, it's a great phrase too. And, and, and how it relates to how it relates to people in the, in the business world. Cause the other thing too, is that if something goes bad, you will be affiliated with that. You, you know, your reputation, if you work in a group of, with a group of people and something goes south, your reputation will go with that group, whether you want it or not. Like it's, you can't just say, well, I'm going to, I'm just looking this way and I'm just going to focus on like, you know, if something is offside, you have to speak up and maybe that goes into your, you spend a lot of time in your book, Kelly, talking about whistleblowers and why they're so important. Maybe it's just an opening question. Why do you have a soft spot for whistleblowers? Why, why, you know, and, and then maybe lead into saying, okay, why are they so important? Well, I mean, I have a soft spot because it is a tough thing to be one. I mean, it takes a lot of yep. courage to step out and say something that everyone knows, but no one will say. And so there's a there's a level of um, courage that I think that they show that most of us don't have, which is why I think a lot of us are scared of them. Therefore, we dislike them and then become not trustful of them because they're strong. And people yep. don't tend to like strong personalities, strong people. We like people that are just moderate, easy to get along with. They agree with you all the time. They don't push back. Whistleblowers are tough. 
I mean, they're tough. Yeah. They, they, they're going to keep going and going and going and going and going until you hear them. So they have a different um, personality makeup that makes them a little bit more challenging. I bet if they did, if, if we uh, did the Myers-Briggs test on most of them, they would be, what is it, ENTJ? They would be the highest, the most, the most, most difficult one because they're so tough and so strong. How do companies encourage whistleblowing? What are the behaviors that we need to do as a company in order to encourage people to be able to speak up and share their opinions without fear of blowback and getting fired and all this other sort of stuff? It's a tough balance, obviously, and it's easy, much easier said than done. Because like you say, whistleblowing is a tough, is a very, very difficult job. Yeah. Um, it, mean, it means stress. It means a whole bunch of things. How within the companies do we encourage whistleblowing? Because like you say, 40% of frauds or thereabouts are uncovered by whistleblowers. So they clearly play a really important role in, a, in uncovering bad behavior. How do we encourage whistleblowing? Well, I think it first has to start with um, a, a corporate honesty. And that is, do you even want whistleblowers? Like, let's, be, let's have a real talk. Like, do you really want people... <laughs> to come forward with information. Let's be honest, because if yep. we if we really don't, then we don't have policies. We don't talk about it. We don't encourage it. And so I think that first, we just have to be honest about what we really want, because employees are going to conform to what you really want them to do. So I think there's an honest conversation that we have to have. Assuming that you do want whistleblowers, we need to make sure that we have the appropriate channels, internal channels, external channels, and support around them. And that we are having almost, you may even might, might want to call them, we have an annual whistleblower check-in. Like we're going to ask, have you seen anything that you want to share with me? And maybe that that conversation is not with a superior. Maybe it's with some an external partner. Maybe it's a retired person that is that's affiliated with affiliated with your board. Who knows? But there has to be a way to embrace it in a different way than have you signed off on the whistleblower policy? Yep. Like, how can we embrace it? How can we operationalize it? Because I think what we are seeing is the way that we execute ethics, the way we execute whistleblowing is just more transactional and not transformative. And so we have to get beyond that. So how are we actually embracing people that are coming forward? Because I would argue most companies don't want anybody to come forward. That's what I would argue, yeah. you know? And so like, you know, we just have to have a real talk, a real talk, talk with our C-suite, a real talk with our board. Do we really want that? And if we sort of want it to be a little bit more low key, how can we embrace that? You know, how can we incorporate that into our annual performance evaluations to get people to say something? Because no one's going to say anything in an environment where you want everybody quiet. And that's just real talk. If you want people to stay quiet, they are going to stay quiet. If you really want people to come forward, you're going to have to create an environment where they actually will do that. Well, Kelly, we could talk for hours about this stuff. Um, the way I want to wrap up is what can we look forward to from Kelly yes. Richmond Pope? Can we, you know, you end your book almost like with a James Bond type of story of going <laughs> to some, you know, mysterious island talking about, you know, <laughs> cryptocurrency and all this other sort of stuff. It's gotten us excited. Can we, what's in the, uh, can, can we look forward to anything, sure. you know, whether it's streaming or books or whatever, what's next, uh, what's next coming down the pipe from uh, Kelly Richmond Pope? So that story that's in the, um, in the end of the book is actually a movie that is out now 
um, that I'm in. So I'm talking about that filming for this movie. It's called The Highest of Stakes. Um, you can okay. catch it on Apple TV. It's on Amazon Prime. And um, I'm actually working on another documentary um, about a healthcare um, fraud. And the name of the working title for that is Truth Be Told. So that should come out next year. So maybe we'll talk again about that. Wow. No, that's uh, that's awesome. Well, well, Kelly, thank you again very much for 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 taking the time. Again, you're super busy. Uh, you got a million things on your plate, but uh, but on behalf of all of us, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, it is uh, it very much appreciated. Thank you so much for the invitation.